Hey folks, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. This is our Necessary Conversation series where we talk about diversity. And today it is an honor for me to have Eleanor Lumsden with us. And she teaches strategies to help companies inspire, engage, and retain their best talent while fostering diverse and inclusive workplaces. She has over 20 years of professional development experience, including as an attorney, a law professor, and founder of the consulting company that bears her name. Through her employee engagement and communication effectiveness work, Eleanor simplifies challenging concepts into manageable takeaways. And boy, do we need that now more than ever. She's a Princeton and NYU law grad, and she's a tenured professor at GGU Law, a former Fulbright scholar, and her scholarship has been featured by USA Today and BBC World News. She serves on the board of trustees for Emma Willard School, an independent boarding day school. Uh, it's a high school for girls in Troy, New York. She now resides in Lisbon, Portugal, where she's conducting research at the intersection of business, technology, and social justice at the Nova School of Law. Please join me in welcoming Eleanor to the Inside BS Show. Welcome, Eleanor. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Dave. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So you're in you're in Portugal right now. What's the what's the situation where we're recording this? It's uh, toward the end of March. It's the middle of March. Uh, actually, it's yeah, it's the middle of March. Uh, what's the COVID situation like right now in Portugal? Give us uh, give us kind of a, a an overview. Well, we've been under an extended lockdown since January fifteenth, and so the the situation has been that we have not we've essentially been asked to stay in our homes. Everything has been closed except for grocery stores, and they just partially lifted some of the restrictions. I was actually googling today to figure out exactly what I can and cannot do, but they lifted some of the restrictions on Monday, and so I just came back from a walk. It's I think if I had to guess, it was seventy degrees outside and gorgeous so there we've always been able to go out for walks and exercise but there are a million people out because it's sunny and you can kind of sense that summer is coming so there's a sense of hope <laughs> open anticipation that's great yeah hope is definitely a good thing especially yeah. especially during these difficult times what is the vaccine situation like in portugal right now um my understanding I haven't been called and my mother is here with me and she hasn't been called either. And she, my understanding is that it's, it's many people have been vaccinated, but it's been slow. The rollout has been slow. And I understand that it's not just Portugal, but there have been, uh, it's been a sort of slow rollout throughout Europe. So uh, we're, we're just waiting. Everyone here is very patient. And so there's no sort of complaining about it. Everyone just says there's an order to which people are gonna be getting the vaccine. Uh, including people who are older first, essential personnel. So we're all just waiting patiently. Sure, sure. And how how long is the term of your of your time in Portugal? You're you're doing you're doing research there. Are you there permanently, or is it is there a, is there an end date to your time in Portugal? Yes, it's a good question. I am not supposed to be here permanently. I came over on a one year leave from my school in San Francisco, Golden Gate University School of Law, and I extended that leave. <laughs> And then I extended it again. I just extended it again. So I'm at least here through summer 2022. 
Oh, wow. And then we'll okay. see what happens. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you'll be, when did you get there? When did you arrive? Uh, I came in, I left on, I think, Memorial Day, May 19th, uh, 2019. So it's been a couple of years now. So you had you had a good few months before the pandemic hit, and you'll have and you'll have a good a good few months after. Hopefully, everyone gets vaccinated, so you'll get to you'll get to enjoy uh, the culture and the weather and everything. So that's yeah, good. Absolutely, I've actually been here. I've been coming here since 2016. So oh okay, <laughs> I've been I've been coming for my summers and my spring breaks and Christmas winter holidays. So I've been coming to Portugal for quite a while. So it feels very comfortable now <laughs> tell me tell me about portugal what what yeah. drew you to portugal initially it's really an amazing place and i think the the main reason i came i had two sets of friends one one set in the u.s in the bay area and another set of friends from the uk from london who maybe 10 years ago were telling me how amazing portugal was and how uh, my friends in the Bay Area told me that I, in particular, would love it, and I, I just, you know, I couldn't pin, pin down why mm. they they thought I would love it, but they said you just have to go, you have to go. And then the same thing happened with my friends. Uh, there are people that I just met through an Airbnb, actually, that I stayed in. We became friends, and then, you know, ten years later, um, it was probably less than ten years, maybe six years later, I finally made it to Portugal. I came. I was supposed to be just passing through. And then I ended up canceling the rest of my plans and staying for the rest of the summer. I moved in with a family and did an immersion program. And good for I you. I just fell in love with it. It's really That's great. great. Yeah. So now, so now you you speak Portuguese. I'm assuming, right, I, with, the, with the immersion program. Eu falo muito português, sim. <laughs> <laughs> I speak a fair amount of. I can understand what people say, and I can speak back. I wouldn't consider myself fluent. And I do bail out sometimes when people start speaking really quickly and I can't understand it and ask them to slow down. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like me in the supermarket here in Miami. My yeah. my Spanish is great, but you know, get me get me in get me under pressure having to make change in Spanish and it's like, wait, 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 let's just do this in English. That's <laughs> true, it's true. That's what happens. Sometimes people will show up at our door here and they're random people here to do inspections and things. I, I can do anything, like in the stores, I can order food, I can have lots of different kinds of conversations, but some kinds of conversations just come out of the blue and you're like, what? <laughs> uh, I, you know, that's uh, language, language stories are sometimes some of the, some of the best stories because the, the, everyone appreciates, especially when you're, when you're uh, a foreigner, everyone appreciates the effort that you're making, yeah. but the person who's, who's, you know, kind of in the, in the situation, I mean, you want to express yourself as, as, uh, as well as you possibly can, but I mean, just in English, it's a struggle sometimes to find the words. So thinking in a different language is, is just, I, I can't imagine as an adult, going through an immersion program and uh, just the, the, it would be overwhelming for me. And you're, yeah. as an educator, your, your mind is probably a little bit more open. Was it, was it easy for you to, to pick up the language when you, when you first were immersed in it? Well, it's easy to read it because I actually learned Spanish first. And so reading it, if you, if you know Spanish, then you can read most Portuguese. Some words, many words are different, but there are a lot of similarities. And so at first it was, it was easy to kind of get around, you know, and then a lot of people, of course, in Portugal speak English. When I, I mean a lot of people speak English in Portugal, so that made it easy as well. 
Um, but then when I started speaking, now I'm trying to, they think I'm Spanish <laughs> because I speak Portuguese, like as if I'm speaking Spanish sometimes. Uh, so that's, you know, that's not always great. Uh, the family yeah. that I lived with, I, you know, they had a little girl, it was a couple, a young couple, they're in the film business. I kind of just really lucked out and they had this little three-year-old girl and they actually wanted to, to speak more English. So they didn't speak that much Portuguese with me, but she only spoke Portuguese. So I had great conversations with her and her, she had a little imaginary friend at the time, Simao. So at the breakfast table, we're saying all kinds of things in Portuguese. It was great. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. That's terrific. You know, tell us, give us your, give us your background. And I, I'm, I'm particularly curious about who, who is Mother Thunder? And tell us about your, tell us about your background. Okay. So I was born in Jamaica originally and uh, moved to the U.S. with my family when I was three years old to upstate New York. And Mother Thunder was the name of my grandmother, Lynette Johnson. And she moved to the U.S., uh, she was sponsored by my aunt, to, who worked in the travel industry in Jamaica, but she moved to the U.S. alone uh, to kind of start a new life. And she did it in her 50s. <laughs> so I think of what I'm doing is like sometimes when I, I'm afraid and I'm like, what am I doing? I think back to her and at that time. And, you know, she had a grade school education. She had seven children. She was married. She'd never worked outside the home. And so she was this sort of force. And so they called her that back back home. She was, you know, she took in uh, kids besides her own kids and, and raised them and supported them, her own children, getting them to college. And I just think of her and my mother as sort of huge inspirations for being brave and and leaving behind everything that they knew to start a new life. And, you know, the famous story is, is that they moved to Albany, New York in the middle of winter and they had no coats. <laughs> There's some family mythology about it. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> That's it. Like, why, why did they wind up of all places <laughs> in they were Albany? Sponsored. I know, I know. It's sort of crazy. Like, why didn't they? They're all like in Florida now. And I'm like, why didn't you start there? But, you know, the way it worked is that you had to go where you, you were sponsored. And so they... She knew people um, in in Albany, New York, and I think it was through church as well uh, okay. that they were sponsored to, to go there. So, yes. <laughs> great, uh, great, great story, really. You know, and that it that gives such great context to you and your accomplishments thus far in your life because you had excellent role models. Right. Yeah. And that's a perfect place for us to start our uh, our conversation today. Talk to me about role models for uh, diversity and inclusiveness. If I were to say to you, all right, Eleanor, who do I need to, I want to I be the most inclusive person I can possibly be. Who should I be modeling my behavior after? It's a good question. And, and I will say, maybe this is not an obvious choice, but someone who's been an inspiration for me has been um, Brian Stevenson, he wrote a book that is, I think it hit the New York Times bestseller called Just Mercy, and he is uh, head of an organization called uh, the Equal Justice Initiative. And he, I met him, I met him a very long time ago, I don't reveal my age, but I met him when I was in college. I did a summer internship in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Lawyers Committee for um, it, the name has changed, but it's housing and urban development or something like that. And mm -hmm. he was working at this 
place called the Death Pen Penalty Information Institute. He's basically an anti-death penalty um, advocate, and he is also a lawyer and a law professor. So I met him there. He was my mentor there when I was working, you know, had no idea what I was doing in D.C., living in Georgetown. And then he sort of mentored me when I was at Princeton on a, a writing project, my thesis that I was working on. And then I... It just happened that when I was at NYU Law, he was teaching this class that was hugely popular. And he's just the kind of person who, when he talks about his work, it makes you want to laugh. It makes you want to cry. It makes you want to sort of get out and make the world a better place because he's doing it and he's been doing it for so long in these incredible spaces. And so the reason I look to him when I think about diversity and inclusion, even though he's doing sort of anti-death penalty work, is that he has this in his book, he, he talks about how we all need to get proximate to each other, that part of the problem is that we don't talk to each other. We don't know people of different races and ethnicity. And when I say no, I mean like live with them because mm -hmm. we were sort of segregated in our workplaces and our communities. And if we did, and if we were all more willing to step out of our comfort zones and get to know people of different backgrounds, faiths, political leanings, uh, in other words, to get proximate, to get closer to them, that we would have a more... Um, a more compassionate and empath empathetic view towards others. And so I think of him when I think about the work that I do now and I think about him and um, how he he just, he, he goes into prisons and he defends people who most people have given up on. And he's got quite a few, um, he's overturned a number of sentences where people were wrongly committed. And it's just very inspiring. He has a way of speaking that, you just want to open your checkbook. You want to go on a speaking tour with him. He's just, I mean, and it's not just me. I mean, I've been to his book signings. I've kind of, you know, I'm not exactly a stalker, but if he is anywhere in my vicinity, I'm like, I'm going. And you just see, I look around at his talks when I'm at his talks and people are laughing, they're crying, they're hugging each other. It's, it's just really incredible. So uh, he's definitely my inspiration uh, for the work that I do. That's terrific. So much of what we do in our formative years is based upon who we look to as our role models. And I think it continues even beyond that. Now, when we're when, when uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Joe Sakala on and he's the CEO of the Dream Exchange, which is the first um, minority owned stock exchange. It's in formation here in the United States. Now mm -hmm. he's raised a ton of money. He's doing he's doing great work. And I turned to him. He's a he was a, a former lawyer who had handled civil rights cases. And I and at the end of our conversation, I gave him this question, which I'm going to ask you at the beginning of our conversation, because this is your field. I said mm -hmm. to him, Joe, listen, why are professional services so why is it so hard for us to have African-American in particular, but minority people of color in leadership roles? We don't have people in leadership roles in professional services like law firms, for example, for the, you know, the, the new recruits who are coming in to look up to. And it's a, it's a huge problem. And, and the problem is not necessarily, it, it's bad now, but it's going to continue to be bad if we don't 
have people who are being promoted into these roles, who are being offered these opportunities. So Eleanor, what's the solution? How do we get folks, people of color into leadership roles in these professional services firms so that we can bring up a generation of lawyers who have role models in these firms and they can say, I can be a partner in this firm. I can be on the management committee in this firm because this firm is welcoming of people who look like me. How do we break through that? How does that happen? It's a good question and, and certainly a challenging one. I'm not sure I can answer it in under an hour, but what I will try. And what I will say is that I think that the, the first step begins with um, hiring and recruitment strategies. Um, I think, and you know, this is just my opinion, that when people are hiring generally, when you're, you're looking to kind of fill positions at an organization that you work in, usually it's you're looking, what's the first thing that you do? You ask around, you know, you ask around your own networks, you ask people that you know, or you say, oh, you know, I think we're hiring. So yes, of course, organizations do put out, you know, job advertisements, but a lot of times people come to their positions through connections, through networks. And if these organizations aren't diverse to begin with, then who's going to get hired, right? And it, it's not, I don't think it's like a nefarious plot or anything, but it, it kind of is just the way it is. And so uh, sometimes I think that that can lead to um, kind of a situation where you have kind of insular hiring practices. So I think it's very important. It's incumbent on um, institutions, and if you you know want to sp specifically focus on law, which has been called you know the least diverse profession by more than one commentator, is that we need to be more intentional in our hiring and recruitment um, policies in terms of looking beyond our networks, beyond kind of the the usual suspects for who we recruit, and and then so on the hiring front is very important, and and. You know, the recruitment front um, to sort of expand our idea of you know who's who looks like or who's most likely to fit in. Sometimes I think um, exclusionary practices can can come when people say, "Well, we're not sure that he or she would be a good fit <laughs> without right. with our culture." What does that mean exactly? And so I think people right. need to to examine that more. So on the hiring and the recruitment front, and then importantly on the retention front. So once you've got them, you've got diverse candidates, you can't kind of just leave them out to dry. You actually are gonna to have to do more to make sure that they um, are a fit and can become a fit and, and have the mentoring that they need because often they're going to be or maybe uh, the minority, the only, can you imagine? The only in an institution. And that by itself is jarring. And you know, I will just tell you as, you know, it's even just being like the only American <laughs> in a room, in a sure. in a place that is wonderful. People here are so kind and so respectful and gentle, but it's still jarring. And it's I'm still hyper aware of my <laughs> foreignness. And so, you know, it helps when people are uh, willing to kind of reach out and, and are willing to kind of show you the ropes and to help you. And so I think it, it, all of those things need to be done in conjunction. I don't think there are any, any easy solutions, um, but you know, that's, that's kind of where I, that's where I fall. Yeah. You know, I, so I did an event a couple of years ago 
with uh, with a client's firm, and it was it was an event specifically focused on uh, diversity. And we we did a panel. We did an LGBTQ panel, and mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a trans uh, woman on the panel. And when when she was telling her story, she she said something that really stuck with me, and it has been it has really been the crowbar that has allowed me to pry open uh, LGBTQ opportunities in other client organizations. And what she said was this. She said, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Mm -hmm. If your organization is inclusive and you're welcoming of people who are trans, you will never have a hiring problem. <laughs> and then she went on to share how between 10 and 20% of the flight attendants that work for American Airlines, where mm -hmm. she works, yes. are trans. Mm -hmm. And she said, American Airlines does not have to recruit flight attendants here in Miami and in Dallas because it is the word is out in the trans community that American loves hiring trans people. Mm -hmm. They get, they're overwhelmed with applications, particularly from the LGBTQ community, because mm -hmm. of their practices. Yeah. And when I when I tell people this and some of them have chosen to investigate on their own because why would they take Dave Lorenzo at his word, right? They go <laughs> and they investigate on their own and they find this to be true. Yes. Immediately a light bulb goes off over their head. Oh my goodness, we, you know, in a difficult employment environment, we're not going to have to spend a lot of extra money recruiting. This is a huge competitive advantage for yeah. us. Yeah. So, you know, I think the more we get the word out that being an inclusive workplace is a huge competitive advantage, I think people will, I mean, it's unfortunate that we have to beat them over the head with the financial implications of this. They should just do it because it's the right thing to do. But, you know, however, you know, by any means necessary, right? However, yeah. we have to open the door. Let's open the door for them. Do you think it's true when it comes to, it's got to be true for, for inclusiveness when it comes to not just, you know, not just um, gender, but also, you know, ethnicity and, uh, and, and racial background. I mean, that it's got to be a competitive advantage to be an inclusive workplace. Yes, absolutely. I, 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 I there's research that says so at 100% that it, there is a competitive advantage. And, and also when I think about law, it's been a long time since I've been in a law firm, but I love my law firm, Oric. And, and when I was there, I remember uh, speaking to one of my clients, our clients, and, and he said, um, that he and others wanted to see more diversity in law firms. And, and so the clients were driving it as well. And so imagine if you have a law firm or a university or an organization in which you have happy people. You, you've, you've tried your best to recruit diverse candidates and to keep them happy and to make them feel included while they're there, they're gonna spread the word and other people are gonna wanna come and see what, you, what you've got going on and, and why it's a good place to work. And so, you know, just, as, just in the same way that negativity spreads and we know how quickly that can spread. I think about um, above the law, this you know, site where if anything's gone down or wrong in law firms, you know, everybody's gonna hear about it. And law students yep. read it and they wanna know, you know, how how does does the talk match the walk or does the walk match the talk? I don't know if I said that right. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think you're you're 
the person that you spoke to is absolutely right. And I think that goes across um, any number of indicators, any number of cross or intersections. All right. So let's, let's help the managing shareholders of the world who are listening and watching us now, let's help them solve this problem. So, yeah. uh, you know, step one for a managing shareholder in a midsize firm, forget the, you know, forget the Amlaw 50. They're yeah. candidly, they're lost causes when it comes to diversity, unless, you know, unless we can, unless we can somehow have some sort of a, a lobotomy in the people <laughs> who are in management, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of hope for uh, the the storied classic white shoe firms. No, right? no, but no one's a lost cause. No one's a lost cause. I don't. <laughs> okay, nobody's to nobody's it. a lost cause. But let's <laughs> let's focus our attention on on places where we can have big impact versus yeah. little impact, right? Yeah. So big impact, mid level firms. Right yeah. now, I'm a I'm a shareholder in a in a mid level firm. Mm -hmm. I want to be more diverse. What can I do today? Yeah, so one thing that you can do first, uh, I think everyone should, and you know, now that we're in this sort of time of racial reckoning following George Floyd, I think that everyone needs to look at their written communication. That's, you know, when people check out your website, that's usually the first place that people go to see who you are and what you're about. And so if you, 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 you're saying orally to someone that you are a diverse and inclusive workplace, but then I go to your website and I see nothing. I look for mission statements. I look for where people put their money. And if I see nothing, no statements about how they intend to be or plan to be or are a diverse and welcoming place for all people, <laughs> then I think that there's something wrong. So I think step one, people need to think about um, what their mission is and how the mission of whatever it is that they're doing, you know, substantively in the world intersects with along different lines, along racial lines and gender lines. And I think just more transparency in general. I think sometimes people are afraid to show, companies are afraid to show that they are a work in progress. <laughs> mm. And, but that, that, you know, either it gets out that you are an inclusive company or people just assume that you're not. And so what are you, what can you do to be more intentional about telegraphing that message to other people that you are welcoming. And so, you know, your website is one thing, one place, your, your communications is one place that you can sort of look at. And then also the events that you hold, the people that you invite to have conversations. I've been heartened by so many companies that are, have admitted that they don't know, they're not experts, but they're willing to have people come in to have conversations with their leadership, with their employees about race, about you know equity, about inclusion. And that is an indication that, and, and sort of inviting other people in, you know, not having it be sort of an insular conversation, but inviting other people, other constituencies, the general public, the community, the surrounding community, um, I do a lot of work, or I teach business associations at GGU, and we talk about corporate social responsibility. And there's a section where we talk about how um, corporations often want to make sure that the public, I mean, the ones that are doing good, right, that public and the community knows what they're doing in the world and that they're they're doing good things for the company. and. and and good things for the for the community, good things for the world, and the different ways and 
which companies do that, right? It might be, you know, you're, you're sponsoring an organization and you publicize it. It might be that you send your employees out into the world. I remember at Oric, we used to go out into the community with Habitat for Humanity. And of course we got our Oric shirts on, but I love doing it. You know, we're hammering around, hammering away on someone's house. And I think all of that is important and not just sort of as a way of, you know, saving face, but to, to really show that, you mean it, that you've got the words, the communication, but you're actually backing up your words with action. So I think that's a long-winded answer to a short no, it's a good. I think it's a, I think it's a good, insightful answer. Um, looking, at, looking at society as a whole, I, I, again, people who are regular listeners of the show or who regularly watch on YouTube, uh, you'll be familiar with the story, but, I, but it sets important context for, for the next aspect of the discussion. Mm -hmm. I, my, my wife and I, my wife was eight months pregnant with my son when we got up at four o'clock in the morning with lawn chairs and sat outside um, the city center in our community here in South Florida in 2008 to, uh, to specifically to vote for Barack Obama. And we did, and he was elected and we, we took such great satisfaction. And I thought to myself that this is, this is going to help us move forward as a society. It's going to help us you know, it's going to help us heal from, you know, some of the things that have divided us over the years. Mm -hmm. And I look back on that now, and I am personally amazed at how ignorant I was and how, you know, had I had conversations with people of color uh, at the time, I would have realized that, well, it was it was good. It, it it was just it's just like there are black entertainers, just like there are black athletes. Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't the beginning of the end. That was a milestone. And it and it and in reality, it actually served as fuel for even more hate among people who are prone to that. Give us give us your perspective and help me reconcile that and help me with what I can do to whatever momentum was there. How can we recapture that? Yeah, it's, it's a good, good question. I think when, when I think about um, the election of Barack Obama, I, I remember that time as well, a time of, of hope and anticipation. I don't actually remember how this happened because you know I don't know if I'm usually that politically I don't know I'm, I'm not sort of a political organizer or anything but at some point in San Francisco I find I found myself out with a group of people who were uh, supporting his candidacy and this is way back before anyone thought he had a shot I remember people stopping me like do you think he has a chance and I was like Psh, I don't know <laughs> and but I remember the hope that was surrounding me and the people around me and so I was like hey this this you know I'm willing to 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 listen and to see where this might go and I think you know the issue there there's so much to, to unpack with you know what happened you know with how people you know, we're expecting kind of miracles. <laughs> I think they expected like the U.S. to kind of turn around all of a sudden and become this, you know, post-racial society, and which I think is is kind of crazy. Um, but you know, two things. One, I think representation is really important, and so his election said something. But two, we we have to to 
you know, we need to acknowledge that we are in, we are experiencing profound demographic shifts within the United States uh, that are way beyond Barack Obama or any particular president, where we have growing uh, minority populations, where we have increasing conflict, you know, class conflict. We have people who are struggling um, coming, you know, before his election, after where people, industries were kind of closing and, you know, jobs are being moved overseas. And so people are feeling threatened and vulnerable. And so all of those things coming together, you know, it's more than Barack Obama. There's profound change that's happening in the United States. And the change you know, when I think about the civil rights struggle, you know, changed. You think about the change that was happening and how people reacted. There were these landmark decisions, Brown versus Board of Education with desegregating schools. And you you know, <laughs> we saw hoses, people being hosed down in the streets. We saw people, right. you know, the conflict was huge. And so, you know, I... I, I think people put too much on, you know, on his shoulders. I, I think we we absolutely have to expect, have high expectations for our politicians and our leaders, but we all have to look into into our own hearts and be prepared to do the work. And I think a lot of work needs to be done. It needs to, there needs to be, well, now there are a ton of conversations that are happening, thank goodness, but imagine what we've lost and who we've lost in order to have the conversations that we're having today. So I'm grateful that we are in a period where we're having those difficult conversations. I'm grateful for the discomfort, you know, and, and for people being willing to say that they're uncomfortable. But th I just think about, you know, how many people have, have, have died and are, you know, losing their lives in order for us to have these conversations. It's more than Barack Obama. And so, you know, I, I'm, I think it was a watershed moment and we've had more since and we're going to continue to have some. But I think that there is certainly cause for hope. I think that um, we need to figure out Certainly, and you know, this is now me speaking as American in sort of. I feel like I'm kind of hiding, hiding out in Portugal in some ways. <laughs> but I think you know, I I watched the elections. I voted. I you know, was biting my fingernails for my my ballot to make sure that it got in on time. I sent it three weeks early. Uh, but I just think that we we do need to have more conversations and be more willing to be. Um, vulnerable with each other and with people who disagree with us. Um, I don't know. I think it's really. I think it's really important. At, at GGU, right after uh, the election of Donald Trump, I remember uh, at school the students. There, you know, there everywhere. There was their emotions were running high on both sides of the political aisle, and I remember I wanted to find a way to have more conversations. You know, I, more conversations, and so. I organized this leadership conference and I made sure to make it bipartisan. Mm. <laughs> and I, you know, I absolutely believe in so social justice and, you know, and, and, you know, I went into, I became a lawyer because I wanted to become a civil rights lawyer. Uh, but I thought it was really important that we have a bipartisan conversation. So I, I, invited people on both sides of the political aisle. And I remember my students who were conservative were like, thank you, Professor Lumsden. And some of my other folks are like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think we've come to a place, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful about where we're going, but 
you know, when I look at the U.S. and I, and I see the kinds of the vitriol, the hatred that's in our in our discourse, it, it's really, I, I, I think it's really sad. I, 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 it's kind of scary, you know. I, it's just something that um, I kind of hope that we can pull ourselves out of. You know, it's so it's it's amazing how uh, the if you can if you can kind of put your um, put your put your emotions in your pocket and have a discussion. It's amazing how that can it it, it can eventually some of it can sink in. And the you know the the example I I share with people all the time is you know the, take the phrase Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Right. And when when if you sat down and you had a beer with somebody who was adamant that all lives should matter. Right. Mm -hmm. And you sat down, and you just broke it down with them and you said, yeah. of course, all lives should matter. Yeah. What where what you know, what people are saying when they say black lives matter is that it's easy to just completely overlook and completely not recognize that people whose skin is black are 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 they're 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 just not seen and they're treated differently than everyone else that's what that phrase is about that phrase is not only black lives matter that yeah. phrase is not black lives matter to the exclusion of all others yeah. that phrase is about include us in the conversation yeah that's a that phrase should be a starting point when you sit down if you're if you have a rational conversation with some people who are like you know that that phrase they're, they're trying to cut people out if you have a rational conversation with people mm -hmm. that can slowly start to sink in and you, you got to find a way to really begin to have that dialogue so that it's not a it's not necessarily a knee jerk reaction. Eleanor, what has what have you had any experience where you can begin to start a conversation with someone and, and get them to slowly open up to the fact that it's about inclusion, not excluding you to the inclusion of me? Yeah, it's. You know, it's an interesting thing. I, I have been able to have, I think, really productive conversations with people, um, and I, around race, around you know protests. You know, at some point, my mother and I, and my mother, you know, she, she is, you know, Jamaican woman, you know, very kind of soft spoken, but also, as I told you earlier, a fighter inside, and and you know. We, we have conversations all of the time about, you know, why is it so hard for people to have kind of calm conversations about um, some of these issues? And when I think I, it, it always surprises me when people talk, talk about Black Lives Matter and, and have such a reaction to that phrase. I think that, you know, when we're, we're having conversations, there are tons of examples of where we focus in on a particular issue you know, to the exclusion of other issues, just because we're talking about that issue. I heard someone once to talk about, you know, September 11th, you know, when we're, when I was in New York and watched the building, one of the buildings go down. I used to work there in the World Trade Center and I mm. went to NYU, which is just up the road. And so it was a hugely emotional event for me. And so I think about on September 11th, I think about that day every, every September 11th. And I think about, 
you know, when we have memorials about September 11th, and, and we, we want to remember the people whose lives were lost on that day. And I just imagine what would happen if, you know, I didn't lose anybody, but I just imagine how I would feel if someone said to me on September 11th, all lives matter. <laughs> I'm like, well, yes, they do. <laughs> but on this particular day, we are commemorating the people who lost their lives in this, in this senseless tragedy. And so when I think about it that way, and I, I think there's room, there's space to, to, to acknowledge the hurt and the harm that people have suffered. And, and I, I, I don't know, I think we all just need to make a little bit more space, a little bit more room for understanding of other people's perspectives. I think because... Uh, imagine... Go ahead, sorry. Um, imagine walking downtown, right? I was, mm -hmm. I, uh, I had the same experience you did. I was in New York on September 11th. I had, uh, I ran a, a good sized business. I had eight employees that were, that were in the World Trade Center. We had, I was running a, a hospitality business and lost over 300 uh, guests, uh, lost friends. Mm -hmm. Imagine walking by those, um, the placards that mm -hmm. were on the wall with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of faces of people. Have you seen my son? Have yeah. you seen my brother? Have you seen my cousin? And the thing that, as we reflect on it now, 20 years later, the thing that stands out to me, not in, in, in no small reason because we're having this conversation now is, those faces were all different colors. Yeah. Those faces were all different races. Mm -hmm. And the grief that was shared among all of those families did not know if those people who were not coming to dinner were not were not going to be there for the holidays. The grief didn't didn't know and didn't care if they were black, if mm -hmm. they were white, if they were Asian, if they were Jewish, if they were Muslim, mm -hmm. you know, that grief knew no race it knew it had no it had no boundaries and in that moment in those in those months after I, I'm, I'm not going to presume what your experience was but my experience was a feeling of belonging to something that was bigger than just you know yeah. just just me just my just my friends it was like we were all regardless of who you were we were all in it together Absolutely. and it took a very long time i don't know i don't know if you experienced this but it took a very long time for that to go away it was yes. it was at least a year where we felt that absolutely absolutely i felt that way i even felt that on the day of actually i when i was i was my first instinct you know i don't know why but my first instinct was actually to walk down there i don't know what i was thinking but my heart was just breaking and i started to walk down and then very quickly people scores of people were coming up 6th avenue covered in dust and and then i was like oh my goodness i got to flee i got to flee and i lived in brooklyn at the time and the subways were shut down i realized for the first time i think that manhattan was actually an island cuz i couldn't get off of it and i started walking up up, just up 6th Avenue with hordes of people. And I remember I got on a bus and none of us, we were trying to get our cell phones to work and none of our cell phones were working. I, actually, there were some people who had Verizon. I switched to Verizon after that tragedy because, you know, I saw that <laughs> their phones are working. And this sense, and so I got, but then it stopped in the shadow of the Empire State Building and we're all looking up like, don't stop, don't stop. And everyone, we all got off. And then I walked, I, the only thing, place that I could think to go was I, my 
friend, best friend from college worked at Mount Sinai and she had an apartment in, in upper um, Manhattan. And so I was like, I got to get to her and maybe I can get to her place. And of course I wasn't thinking she was a doctor. Of course she's going to be in the hospital. And I remember walking through the park and it's the first time that my heart stopped racing, even though there were jets flying overhead. It was the first time that I felt like I could breathe because I'm like, okay, the birds are still chirping. <laughs> it's still blue sky. And then I remember being gathering around police cars with everybody. You know, we're just trying to find out what was happening. And I didn't care what people looked like on either side of me. You know, we're all huddled in there tight, just trying to figure out what happened. And as you say, that continued for a very long time. I'm right with you. It was at least a year. But, you know, seeing the memorials around town, but also just different places kind of evoked the sense of emotion. I remember Union Square was like that for me. Um, a lot of subway platforms where you'd see the the flowers and the cards. And I really do think it was a time of coming, coming together um, for New Yorkers. I would love to see, I mean, that was born out of tragedy, but I would love to see that kind of coming together for our nation uh, because it is really such a great place with such promise. And, you know, I think about my grandmother and my mom and my family who moved here for that promise. You know, they didn't move right. during, during an easy time to be in the United States, but they moved for the promise. And I think that promise is still, is still there um, and, and that we can kind of live up to that. And it's important that we do. You know, my, my Portuguese friends here, you know, they're sending me all these election jokes on election day. They were glued to the TV just like I was, right? So... It's really important that we try to do better, I think, as Americans, is, is to, to, to come together. Um, let's talk a little bit about because you're because you, you work at a university and you're you're exposed to that environment a little bit. Let's let's stray a little bit off topic and talk, eh, although somewhat on topic, talk a little bit about this this notion of cancel culture and political correctness. Um, I, I'm, I'm torn because I, uh, for, for, for a while, I did some stand-up comedy. I love stand-up comedy. I love people being able to express themselves. I love the freedom of speech element. And I, I feel like some of the things that we hold so dear to us have been co-opted for and and it, it's probably it's probably happened you know over the course of uh of centuries in other societies as well but you know t talk to me about this notion that you know it's it look it's not okay to use hate speech and telling people that they can't hold a job any longer because they're essentially, you know, uh, provoking hate is one thing, but being able to express yourself openly and honestly based on what you feel is something completely different. So how do we balance the two? And because you're, you know, because you have exposure to a college campus, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting place. These are interesting times for that uh, that dichotomy. So talk a little bit about what we do as a society to balance the need for freedom of speech with, you know, not being hateful and not promoting hate with our speech. Yes. 
Thank you for the question. You know, first I'll just say that this the whole discussion about cancel culture I think is fairly ridiculous. I think that freedom when we say freedom of speech, it's never been fully free. You know, when we talk about the I, t I teach about the First Amendment in this class that I teach, defamation, privacy, and other related torts. And I ask the students every year, what does the First Amendment mean to you? And, you know, I get different answers. <laughs> but what we're talking about is that the government, the government cannot clamp down on your speech. But what but you, there is always, it has always been the case that if you, that, employers, institutions have their own code of conduct. So they can absolutely fire you <laughs> if you say something that is not within how they sort of see themselves operating. It's in policies when we sign up. And so, you know, people sort of being outraged that this is something that's suddenly new. I, I just don't see it as something new. On the other hand, I understand now when you're talking about sort of there's a tension, I understand that people feel that they, you know, can't just say whatever they want and that, you know, they feel like they have to be politically correct and that if um, they say the wrong thing at the wrong time, someone's going to get too offended and they're, you know, they're going to be forced to shut up. I hear that all of the time. And I think that there is something there where people, we're having this moment where we're talking about race, but race is uncomfortable for many people to talk about. So how do you get to the point where you, where you feel like you can talk about it openly and honestly without being afraid of being called a racist? That's what people tell me, right? And the kind mm -hmm. of workshops that I do is that people say, you know, we want to have conversations, but we're afraid we don't know all of the lingo. We don't know the language. And we're afraid that, you know, if we say the wrong thing, people are just going to say that we're racist. And that's the end of the discussion. So I think, I think that that is a valid concern. And that's one that we need to, to kind of talk about. Um, but, you know, where, where I started is in school and when, I, you know, in classes, um, we, we do talk about, you know, what are the limits of speech? Like that defamation class that I teach, we talk about, you know, freedom of expression, the media, the importance of protecting the media in some ways. And, and so this, this concept of, of journalism and, you know, whether the media is good or bad, I think it's very current. Um, but for my students, the most important thing for me is for people to feel that they can express themselves. And I think that when you go to school, you know, whether that's college or law school, it, it is, it should be a place where people feel that they can express themselves openly. And I think that, you know, the conversation that we're having in the wider, you know, world and the public is how can we have those conversations respectfully? And, you know, I don't know that I have an answer to that, but I do think that social media and, and, and the anonymity that comes sometimes with social media are not helping. Because I think that when you're not held to your words, what, when, you, when people say cancel culture right now, what I, I hear is that people are being held accountable, perhaps for the first time, for things that they say that, you know, are offensive or hate filled, you know, and in many cases that they should be held accountable for them, you know, but now we've got cell phones and so it, everything goes viral. And so now it feels like it's worse than it was before. Maybe it is. Um, but I do think that, you know, in social media and other places, we need to be personally, individually responsible for our words. And in the same way that I have to be careful 
I have to be careful, even as a professor, about what I say, and because I want to make sure that I have an inclusive classroom as well. Is it too much to ask for people to consider other people's feelings? I don't think so. Now, in your realm, you said you were talking about comedy. I, I've I've heard, you know, I've I've watched a lot of Dave Chappelle and other comedians talk about how they're, you know, they feel that even in comedy that they can't say certain things. And I think that that's a problem. I think that comedy is comedy. <laughs> like, you know, so I don't know. Yeah, it's it's more of a problem for, for people who do it, for, I think, for a living, for people and right. people who are who are in a prominent, uh, you know, of prominent stature in comedy. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody like me, nobody's ever even going to remember that I was up there. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm an afterthought. And I did it to improve my my professional speaking, my public speaking skills. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, there are people who make their living by really pointing out some of the things that evoke emotion in society. Mm -hmm. And that is what comedy essentially is. Right. And you can't point out things in society without aggravating people. Yes. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, I mean, that's, that's the, the nature. That, that's what it is. Yes. Right. Comedy and so, satire. There's there's a place for all of that in our site. And I, I don't think that anyone is saying that there isn't. Um, anymore but but you're right we're in a different time now so people may feel that there's no room and you know the nature the nature of look nobody's listening to the inside bs show expecting to be offended right <laughs> so if i said something that was offensive i welcome criticism mm -hmm. i welcome those complaints to help me get better yes but when you go to see a comedian or you turn on a netflix special yeah you're you're kind of you know you're you're signing up to be in that arena to be in that forum and mm -hmm. there are going to be some things number one that aren't funny mm -hmm. and number two there are going to be some things that are going to offend some groups of people yeah. because that's the nature of it mm -hmm. so if you enter that arena i think you have you should have an expectation that there may be some things that are not exactly you know that are that are not going to be exactly pleasing to all people mm -hmm. all right so let's take the uh, the few minutes that we have left let's take okay. the time that we have left and let's focus on constructive things that that we can do that just you know dave the person eleanor the person can do yeah. to um to advance the cause of inclusiveness. I mean, set aside the fact that, you know, as a as a parent, that's ho that's one whole set of things that I can do, right? Set mm -hmm. that aside. Yes. As a as somebody who has influence over a circle of people that's maybe 15 people, let's say the average person listening to this can influence 15 or 20 people. Mm -hmm. What can we do today, tomorrow to uh to 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 make our little circle a little bit better from an inclusiveness, from a diversity perspective? Yeah, good question. I would love, I think that many organizations that are sort of doing the right thing now, what they're doing essentially is going on a listening tour. <laughs> and so they're opening up channels of communication and scheduling ta talks, right? So allowing people within a circle and this can be done at the institution level, but it can also be done among your circles of friends, right? To ask people specifically, you know, has there been a time where I've said something that has been hurtful to you 
or is there a way that I can be better or more supportive to you? You know, I think that we need to listen more. And, you know, I forget the statistic, but there's, you know, there's a lot of research, research that shows that, you know, we tend to hang out with people who are, who are very much like us, you know, and that, you know, like in some of my friend groups, I might be like the one black friend. <laughs> so if it happens, if it so happens, that's not everybody, but if it so happens that you have, you know, the one black friend, on the one hand, they may not want to, you know, they're sort of beset on all sides by this conversation and may not want to talk about it. But on the other hand, I think that there's some room uh, for people to ask and to express curiosity about the nature of their friendships, you know, and and I think that people can do more to to expand their friendship networks, to expand their the people that they associate with. Um, this may be going back to what I said earlier about you know becoming more proximate, but I I think each of us individually has to do more. And I will, I will say that I think the work has already started. You know, they talked, there was all this research about how people more than ever are sort of buying books on diversity and inclusion and people are having, you know, circles and book clubs and talks um, about this. And so I, I think it just requires um, one initiative and two courage. And so it, I think it takes courage to say to the person, the, you know, your one, you know, I'm inserting black here, but insert whatever kind of friend that you have that is the one person of any, any, anything different in your circle to, to say to them, hey, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert here, but I want to grow and I am growing and I'm doing my own work, you know, not to put it on that person. And, and I'm reading all these books, but, you know, I would love to, you know, talk to you about how I can be more, you know, engaged uh, with you and with others in this discussion. I think it's really important for people to do their own work. So, yeah, you know, I would probably start there, actually, is that, you know, individual in, as individuals, we really need to do our own learning. And there's tons of resources on the Internet and everywhere about, you know, that think books that we can read. Uh, so individually, we all need to start with with ourselves. Um, but. I think that there's more room for conversations and more listening, more listening. We don't have to be defensive. We can just listen to someone's perspective without necessarily having to refute it or, you know, say, well, there's this one time that I, <laughs> I get you that know, a so, lot. So your, you know, your, your black, your black friend comment is so it hit, it hits home with me because I take these episodes, we do these necessary conversation episodes uh, once a week yeah. and I take them and I send them out to some of my friends. Yeah. <laughs> One of my friends who's black emails me back. He's like, are you sending these episodes only to the black people? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's an interesting like, no, question. <laughs> I'm sending them to all my friends, but thanks for making me feel really crappy now. <laughs> and maybe it was a question that needed to be asked. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, am I, am I really am i that guy you yeah. know am i george costanza who the only black person i could find to bring into my boss's office was the exterminator am I, I don't want to be that guy the whole point of this is so i'm not that guy yeah you know? yeah yeah well you know a little friendly ribbing here never hurt anybody <laughs> no these episodes are going to all people yes. regardless of race color creed whatever <laughs> i think what you're doing here is really phenomenal and and i i really applaud and commend you for it because I, I mean it, we have to start somewhere I think sometimes it can feel really overwhelming 
because the amount I, you know, we were just struck by what happened here on January 6th and it, it can just feel overwhelming. And, you know, some people are, you know, I'm tired of talking about race. I'm just sick of this. And you, you, you imagine. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the difficult thing it's, first of all, the, I, you know, I appreciate what you said, but the difficult thing for, I think for people uh, for pe for for white people is the vulnerability, yeah. right? It's the it's you have to put yourself out there, and you're you know there's um somebody told me a very good friend of mine said to me that because of you know because of environment, all of us have some sort of bias in us, whether it's a bias toward people who are who are you know like us from a skin mm -hmm. color perspective or a religious perspective mm -hmm. or just an ethnocentrism based on where we grew up mm -hmm. or whatever um and i think the vulnerability I, I you know speaking for myself the vulnerability that i feel is i don't want to have one of these conversations and wind up saying something that exposes what that may be in me. Mm -hmm. And this is as much an exploration as what's deep down inside of me as it is, you know, airing these issues to make, I think, the community better. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, I, I mean, in, in some way, it's a way for me to explore this in myself yeah. to make myself a better person as much as it is to make you know, to, to, to maybe spark an idea in other people. Look, if we if we spark an idea in one or two people mm -hmm. who listen to this or who watch this, then that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. But it's already a great thing because from a very selfish standpoint, it, it's allowed me to explore what's inside of me mm -hmm. and to, you know, to express that vulnerability in the hopes of being better. Yes, absolutely. And, and what you said is so important that we need, to, I talked about sort of this listening tour, but I think it's really important before you have conversations that you set sort of the terms of engagement that you kind of say, we are agreeing to engage, that this is a safe space and that we're, we may say things that may, you know, be offensive, but it's in service of having a deeper conversation and getting to be, be more proximate, become closer to each other. Um, I think sometimes those conversations can happen without setting the, the bounds. And I, you know, so when I have conversations, I'm, now I'm talking about professionally, I, I sort of have to start there, right? This is where we are. We're all starting off. We're trying to start off on an equal playing field and with understanding and empathy for people being able to express themselves. I don't think that you that can happen so easily in comment sections on social media. <laughs> oh, God, no. Right? No, I, absolutely not. Or even like, you know, I, I know a lot of news, you know, or different kind media type organizations have suspended anonymous commenting or commenting entirely because it's sort of counterproductive and it's so sort of hate-filled. Um, but I think what we need is the opposite of that. We need vulnerability we need accountability and we need transparency and all of those things are difficult, but I think they can be done. It just, you know, it just takes willingness. Doesn't, yeah. you know, well, thank you for your willingness to have this conversation with us. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your work. What are you, what do you, um, what do you hope to accomplish over in Portugal? What is, what, what is the actual, what will be the end product of your work over there? Well, I am, I mean, I've got two hats while I'm here. I'm, I'm not teaching. I'm taking a break from teaching right now. So I'm doing, um, I'm pursuing a PhD 
in law and technology. So I'm looking at, you know, how, you know, technological innovations in developing or emerging countries are allowing people to participate more in the financial system. So it's really kind of cool research. So I'm hoping that I will complete that and and kind of be part of a conversation about change, you know, the balance between technology and inclusion, which, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then I'm also, my other hat is the consulting um, hat. And so while I'm here, I'm doing trainings and it's just really cool to be able to, I, I really like, you know, the, the, there's a wide variety in, in organizations, types of organizations that I work with. And so, um, I'm, I, it's been really fun to kind of have these conversations with people at different levels, you know, at different levels of their understanding and learning about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So my hope is that I continue to grow and I'm learning myself, you know, people are like, oh, you're the expert. I'm, I'm learning. And I, so I, I love, you know, having these conversations and I hope to, to have more collaborations with others who are, who are doing this kind of work. Super. How can how can people get a hold of you if they want to find out more about your work or they want to engage you to do some work with them? How can people get in touch with you? Okay. Well, I I guess my website is probably the easiest way, eleanorlumsden.com, or you can type in Eleanor Speaks and you'll find me, E-L-E-A-N-O-R, like Eleanor Roosevelt, um, is, is probably the easiest way to find me, or LinkedIn. Okay. Perfect. We are going to put uh, we're going to put that as well as your LinkedIn profile in the show notes okay. so people can reach out to you if they'd like. Um, Eleanor, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on. It was a great, great conversation. The The hour flew by like that. It's, it's amazing how, you know, I talk about marketing topics and it, I get through 30 minutes and I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk about marketing anymore, but we can talk about this. I can go for for another hour. So we're definitely going to have to continue this conversation. Yes. Um, down the road because it's, you know, it's a, it's a topic that is things only improve when there's a, there's a respectful open dialogue and people are willing to be vulnerable. So thank you for being willing, for being willing to come on and, and have this conversation with me. Thank you, David. It was really a pleasure. I agree. <laughs> All right, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. We're here every day with a brand new show for you. Join us back here again tomorrow. We take you inside business strategy, share all the insider business secrets with you, and cut through all the inside BS that's holding you back. This was our necessary conversation with Eleanor Lumsden, and it was certainly fun and a privilege to have her with us. Join us again tomorrow. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life. <laughs>